Do you want to, want to know the uh, not-so-secret secret to successful living? Seriously, it's like you don't know me. All right, so start all over again. Morning Harvest, Daniel chapter 4. Hey, do you want to know the not-so-secret secret to successful living? Yes. Perfect. That's the way I imagined it going. All right, so that's, that's great. Well, the successful living secret is this. It's something the world wouldn't necessarily agree with us on, but it's um, humility. It's humility. The ability that we... Uh, have as uh, followers of Jesus Christ to be humble before a holy God. The thing about uh, pride, its opposite is this. Um, The root of every sin issue that we have, the root of every interpersonal relationship problem that we have, the root of our standing before God as being separate from Him as a result of our sin, all of that is pride. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, it says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit uh, before a fall. Uh, One uh, commentator article I read, a man by the name of Jason uh, Meyer said this, pride is not just a sin, but a sinful mother, a sinful orientation that gives birth to more sins. Pride is really at the root of all of it, of all of our sin issues. And in Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see this take center stage where King Nebuchadnezzar's, to use the language from Proverbs 16, King Nebuchadnezzar's haughty spirit led to a fall. His pride led to his destruction. And his experience of humiliation at the hands of God, it stands as a warning to everyone here today. As we seek to live for Jesus Christ, Nebuchadnezzar himself says this right at the very end of the chapter. He says, those who walk in pride, he, God, is able to humble. And you and I do not want to be humbled by God, do we? We don't want to be humbled by God. So much better for us, as, as, as the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, so much better for us to humble ourselves, amen? So let's get to that place today as we see the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So here it is. This is what we're going after. Living for Christ requires a considered humility, a thoughtful humility, an intentional humility on our part. We'll see that in Daniel 4. Let's pray and uh, ask God to bless this time together. Father, it's a um, really good thing that we're here today, and uh, we wouldn't uh, for a moment want to take it for granted. Dan's already prayed for our brothers and sisters in Bamenda, Cameroon, and, and Father, they intended to gather today just like we are. And their government said no. And it's too dangerous to be on the streets, and none of us here face that today. And so it's an awesome privilege for us to be gathered together here and to be able to hear your word now because there's churches around the world that can't do this. So God, I pray we wouldn't take it lightly and that we would lean in now to take advantage of this privilege that we have to hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
All right, let's go after this. Uh, living for Christ requires a considered uh, humility. To have this considered humility, you must first be a singular, singular in your devotion uh, to Christ. Uh, something unique about chapter 4 of the book of Daniel is that it is actually narrated by or written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And that kind of makes it unique in Scripture that we have this uh, king, uh, not, a, not a godly man, not in the sense of being a true follower of Yahweh, not Jewish, not a believer, but he writes this chapter and, and it sounds um, like his really, it's his personal testimony. Or if he were, um, you know, if Nebuchadnezzar had a blog, this would be a blog post about some things that were happening in his life. And uh, picking it up, uh, let's start right at verse 1 here. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, a peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now he's talking about the, the God of Israel, okay, our God, the Most High God. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now listen, I, I read that, and that sounds like something King David would write, doesn't it? That sounds like something that, that we would read if we opened up our Bibles to the Psalms, that we would hear something like that. And it does sound, when Nebuchadnezzar is writing like this, it sounds like he's actually a believer, and you wonder a little bit, since we're in chapter 4, you wonder a little bit going back to chapter 2. Remember, he had that dream, and, and, um, and, and, and he had all the people come in, all of his advisors come in, tell me the dream, tell me the interpretation. They couldn't. Daniel did. And that was kind of like an awesome moment. And Nebuchadnezzar has this little time where he acknowledges the God of Daniel because he gave him the dream and gave him the interpretation. Then in chapter 3, of course, there was the whole statue and bow to this. And if you don't, you're going to be thrown in the furnace, and Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego were there and they didn't bow and they got thrown in the furnace. But then there was a fourth guy and they got rescued and out they came. And Nebuchadnezzar was, wow, everybody better worship their God. And so you, you, you have these touch points where Nebuchadnezzar's having these encounters with the God of Israel. And each time he's kind of acknowledging it a little bit more. And you're wondering if he's being compelled to actually follow the God of Israel. And yet... You see some inconsistencies in that. Verse 8, uh, for example, uh, we'll just um, come down into here for a second to make this point. Uh, at last, Daniel came in before me, and he who was named Belteshazzar, notice what Nebuchadnezzar says, after the name of my God. But, but, but Belteshazzar, that's named after one of the Babylonian gods, so clearly he's not talking about the Hebrew God. And in fact, he says about Daniel, as the verse continues, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? Now it's still sounding like he's a bit polytheistic. He says the same thing in verse 9 and repeats it again in verse 18. And so at the very least, Nebuchadnezzar is still a little bit confused about all of this. That maybe he's simply a polytheist. And he's just added Yahweh in. Now this isn't too surprising at all for a head of state, for a politician. I, I get that he's in an absolute monarchy, but he's still very, very aware that he needs to do some very specific things to maintain power. And so he's still very much playing politics. And you and I know politicians enough to know this, that politicians 
seek to represent their constituents, all of their constituents, and curry favor with voters. And so, isn't it true, politicians adapt to whatever situation they're in. Is that not true? It's okay to nod in church. They adapt to whatever situation they're in. So, I follow a number of politicians um, and, and representatives uh, of government on uh, social media, and so I'll, you know, see this on any given Saturday. They'll be at some church event, and there's uh, something going on, and they're uh, shaking hands with the people, and they're greeting people, and they say a few words, and they show support for the church, and they really sound like they're very comfortable in the church, and they take a couple of pictures and post them on Instagram. Two hours later, they're at the Islamic Center. And they're enjoying that event, and, and, uh, and, and they're meeting people, and they're shaking hands, and they're showing support for the Islamic community, and they take a picture with the imam, and they post it to Instagram. And the next day, they're at the Jewish community center, and they're meeting uh, Jewish people, and, and they're encouraging them, and they're showing support for what they're doing, and they take a few pictures, and they post them to Instagram. That's what politicians do, and we actually expect that of them. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He cannot abandon the gods of Babylon. To do so would mean the forfeiting of his throne. It would be for him political suicide. And so what he's doing is he's simply going, you know what, this Yahweh God of Israel, he's done some pretty spectacular things. I'm just going to add him into the pantheon of gods that I already worship. Now, I'm not saying that this is a good thing. I'm making no comment on it at all, merely to say this is the way it is. I'm not saying it's acceptable to God because it's not. I am seeing this as a critical first step in humbling ourselves by saying there's only one God, that I have to be devoted to Him. Because our pride says, let's, let's forget about Nebuchadnezzar for a second. You and I battle this every day of the week. Our pride says, I can worship whomever I please. I can worship, in fact, as many things as I please. Oh, for sure, we come together like this, and we sound a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. We come together on Sundays, and we sing our worship songs, and we get the Bible open, and we say amen, and respond to the pastor in all the places he wants you to respond. We sound like Nebuchadnezzar in those first few verses extolling God and, and sounding like a psalmist. But then Monday comes and, and we're enamored by something else and we run after it and it looks as if this is the thing we're actually devoted to and has nothing to do with God. In fact, it might even take us away from Him. And through the week, is it apparent to everyone from Monday through Saturday, is it apparent to everyone that you actually love God and are devoted to Him? Are you singular in your devotion to Jesus Christ? Or are you saying out of a heart of pride, I'm in charge here and I'm gonna worship and be devoted to and have my affection set on whatever I please. I'm making that decision. See, at the root of that is pride. And the very first step leads us down a very bad path. And so we need to be cautious about that and see this next. We need to be cautious about prosperity and ease. This is uh, verse 4 now as Nebuchadnezzar gets into his story. This is what he says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. 
Now, note both of those words, ease and prosperity. And Nebuchadnezzar includes this little line as part of his story because it's so critical to his story and where it goes. Now, Babylon... We often have, we have such a negative ring in our ears whenever we hear Babylon because we think of it as just being such a debauched place. And actually, it wasn't really that way. Yes, they served and worshiped foreign gods. But in fact, Babylon in history was spectacular. God had sovereignly decided that it should be so. The city itself was, was master planned and was laid out perfectly. Its hanging gardens were one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Her people were strong, they were intelligent, they were determined, they were creative in the arts and in architecture. They were not just the superpower of the day, but they were also the cultural center of the world. The people of Babylon were, were blessed by God. They received the benefits of the prosperity and the ease that God had sent their way that Nebuchadnezzar was freely acknowledging. Babylon was a good place to live. And their empire was a great time in human history. Now listen, that's not unlike the time we live in now. Now, I, I, get, I get that we like to complain about things a lot and our government and how much money we don't have and all of that. But really, when you look at the totality of history, we live in unprecedented times of blessing. The food that we have to eat, the health care that we have, the jobs that are available to us, the educational options. At, at no time in history have so many people had access to good education. The cleanliness, the leisure opportunities that we have. No other time in history has provided these for us. The peace that we enjoy. Wealth, like no other time in history, distributed as it's distributed. And I get there's still inequities in the way wealth is distributed, but still in the, in the wholeness of history... There's been no time like this where the middle class has been as big as it is and people have enjoyed the prosperity and wealth that we've enjoyed. Now again, I'm speaking into Canada. I'm speaking into the Western world and I get that it's not like that in every part of the world and this message wouldn't play, this part of this message wouldn't play in every part of the world. But I'm, I'm preaching here right now to us. I get that it's not true for every individual in this room and that it's been hard for some here, but generally speaking, overall in our culture, this is what's been true of us. We're not far off or maybe we're even beyond where Babylon was in terms of our ease and prosperity. But that doesn't necessarily help us. In fact, I believe just the opposite. King Solomon cautioned us about the pleasures of this life being empty, vain, meaningless, futile. These are the words that he used. He, he tried everything. You see, Solomon had so much wealth and so much power that he actually was able to try everything. And this is what his conclusion was in that. In the book of Ecclesiastes, is like his journal of that journey he said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I tried everything. 
And then his comment on that from verse 11 was this, Ecclesiastes 2.11. All was vanity. It was all empty. It was all meaningless. It was all futile. And a striving after the wind. He's just chasing the wind. What a useless, stupid pursuit. And Solomon said there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I mean, here's the word that we need to hear. We need to be so cautious about the good things that God gives us. Because ease and prosperity can easily lead us into worshiping the gift rather than the giver. We don't want to get caught being so enamored by the gifts that we forget who gave them to us. That's pride. And we need to be fearful of that. Not just cautioned, but be fearful of pride creeping in. That's our next point. Be fearful of pride creeping in. Not only should you not be complacent about pride, but you should be terrified of it because pride is a determiner of forever things. Pride determines eternal destinies. As we sit here today listening to God's word, that's what's on the line for every one of us. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Verse 5 picks this up. I saw a dream. Notice what he says. It made me afraid. This is the most powerful man on earth. The most powerful army on earth is, is at his disposal. And he confesses to Daniel that he had a dream that he's afraid of. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. I, at this point, I'm like, how did you not know that they're not going to have the answer and you should have just speed dialed Daniel first, right? Daniel's going to have the answer. We know where this is going, that they might make known to me the interpretation of my dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom was the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, well, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So Daniel comes in, he tells, uh, Nebuchadnezzar tells him the dream. He's about to kind of deliver this now, verse 10 to Daniel. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. Behold, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now, this is a picture that's consistent with the ease and prosperity that Nebuchadnezzar starts us out with. And it's going to be pretty obvious that Nebuchadnezzar's the tree. And he, through his leadership, is blessing the entire empire with, with peace, with security, with provision. It's an awesome picture. But then it kind of takes a a darker turn, verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed and behold a watcher, this is an angel, 
um, dispatched to speak a judgment over Nebuchadnezzar. A watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, and he proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, and strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. That's a pretty hard word. Then like a little nugget of hope here, but leave the stump, we're going to come back to that, leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Then something super unusual happens right at this point, because we have now in our picture, this dream is of a tree, this massive tree. It's now been chopped down. There's a stump. Now watch what happens. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. I mean, it just sounds like we're watching a different dream now. Are your dreams weird? Are your dreams weird? Does it sometimes like switch scenes like immediately and you're like, I wasn't even dreaming that. Now I'm dreaming this, right? Is that your dreams too or just mine? Yeah, probably all of our dreams. And so this, there's a big switch that happens here. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So this goes from being a tree to being something like personal. This is now about an actual person. And there's a transformation of this person and they become a beast. They become an animal. And verse 17 says why this is actually going to happen. The purpose behind what's going to happen. The sentence is by decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know Got to get this underlined. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's really the key to it all. This is the thing that Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to learn. And we've talked already about the book of Daniel and one of the primary themes, in fact, the primary theme that hangs over the entire book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. God is in charge. Not just in a global universal sense, but he's in charge in my life. This is the message we need to hear. And so we have this sentence. The reason why this is going to happen is because the tree, the guy who's now become a beast, doesn't understand that God is in charge. So Nebuchadnezzar says, verse 18, this dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, that's Daniel, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me, make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, again, he reiterates, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, we're smart people in this room. We don't need to have our own dream to get what God is saying to us, do we? I mean, I'm, I'm willing to listen to this dream and hear his dream and learn the lesson that God has for me in this. I, I want to hear God's warning to Nebuchadnezzar, and I want to hear that as God's warning to me without the need of a dream, without the need of the result of the dream. I mean, just imagine you're the tree, and you're being warned, and God's going to cut you down to a stump, and you're going to become the beast. And then decide this before all of that happens. Decide not to take life for granted. But every day is precious. To decide that you're not going to assume that what you have is by your own efforts. 
but that God has blessed you with every good thing that you have. That, that you're not going to be in the place of thinking too highly of yourself and your abilities and your accomplishments. And that number four, you're not going to think you're the smartest person in the room. You should have a healthy fear of pride creeping in. We need to do everything we can to push that pride back. Because if we don't, Check this out next. We need to be prepared for God to intervene. To chop down the tree. See, living for Christ requires a considered humility. And part of that consideration is this. If you don't do something about your pride, God will. 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. Why would any of us ever want to do anything that would put us into opposition with God? It's foolishness to oppose God. And the gravity of the situation that Nebuchadnezzar is in is punctuated by how Daniel responds to it. Pick it up at verse 19. Daniel has just been asked to interpret the dream that Nebuchadnezzar just told him. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, notice, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, so Daniel's so upset by the dream because Daniel's already figuring it out. Figuring it out. He knows what this means for the king. And he's so upset about it, he can't even hide his dismay. The king is noticing it in his, in, in, in his reaction. Daniel was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, and this is, this is where you see it. See, Daniel's not just putting in time in Babylon. Okay. He's learned the language. He's learned the culture. He's become a part of high office. He understands that Nebuchadnezzar is there because God put him there. He's there to serve that king. And Daniel actually, I'm going to go this far and say Daniel loved him. Daniel was devoted to the king, recognizing that God had put him there. And you see that in what he says next. Daniel answered and said, my Lord, May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. God was going to intervene and it wasn't going to be pretty. It's rattled Daniel because he loves the king and he knows that this is going to be difficult. Verse 20. He begins to interpret it. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautifully. He describes it all. And he says in verse 22, the very first line, it's you. You're the tree. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong and your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Everyone knows how spectacular Babylon is, and everyone knows it's because of you. 
Verse 23, and because the king saw a watch or a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and, and, and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time, seven years pass over him. He recounts all of that. And then he says, in essence, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be afflicted with this very serious, exceedingly rare, but very serious mental disorder, a disorder called boanthropy, in which he's going to think that he's a bovine. He's going to think he's a cow or, or, or an ox, and he's going to act like it, and it's going to afflict him for seven years until he gets it. Until, until he knows. He says it again, Daniel says it again to him. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump, remember the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom, just a little bit of hope, this is our God always providing a path back to him, always providing us with some hope, as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. God provides a way for him to make his way back, to make the confession, to have his pride crushed. God's going to keep his kingdom secure and give him time to figure it out. Just like he does with us. We'll come back to verse 27 in a moment. Skip to verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, it all happened at the end of 12 months. A whole year later, he has the dream. Daniel interprets it. And then 12 months pass. But he's walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. He's, he's just succumbing completely to his pride. He's forgetting the dream he had a year prior and he's looking at the awesomeness of Babylon and saying, this is me. I did all of this. And verse 31 is so chilling. While the words were still in the king's mouth, while he's still saying them, there fell a voice from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Is there any secret to what this is about? It's humility. Your pride has consumed you. And verse 33 says, immediately the word was fulfilled. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. 
the voice from heaven spoke and he became as an animal. And some of you right here, some of us in this room are struggling at this very point. You're fighting God for control of your life and you don't want to acknowledge that he's the most high and that he has control over everything. And you need to understand that he may intervene in your life in a way that is not pleasant. Cutting your tree down and, 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 and in essence making you into a beast. It won't be pretty. The essence of pride is this. It is a preoccupation with self. And one of the simplest definitions of humility is this, as we seek to overcome our pride. C.S. Lewis said simply this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. So what we're talking about here is not self-deprecation. It's not self-loathing. It's not I'm awful and terrible. Because God has declared us as the followers of Christ, as his sons and daughters, he's declared us to be inheritors of the kingdom of God. He's esteemed us and affirmed us and lifted us up. This is not self-deprecation. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And in this respect, it's exactly what we're called to do is we're called to love one another. That the center of the universe is not me. I'm to love God and love others. That comes out of humility. But this majestic king, the most powerful on the earth, was eating grass and sleeping outdoors, and mooing like a cow. I mean, I think we need to understand the depth of this by changing from the word he was humbled to the word he was humiliated. Same root, same idea. The theme of this chapter really is the humiliation and restoration of the king. To humiliate someone, to get the definition on this, is to reduce someone to a lower position in one's own eyes or others' eyes. Well, that happened. To make someone ashamed or embarrassed. It's Merriam-Webster definition. Synonyms, to mortify, to disgrace, to shame. To take someone down. And we may not be comfortable with the idea that God had humiliated someone. That's exactly what he did. He's breaking his pride. He wants him to acknowledge what has been stated several times already, that God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Again, that theme of sovereignty, that the sovereignty of God that, that hangs over the entire book. One pastor called this incident with Nebuchadnezzar a, a collision with God's sovereignty. This is what we're trying to avoid. Because God said, Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was actually quite blessed to get this intervention in his life. To have this attention from God. Not everybody gets that. Not everybody gets the in this life intervention. Not everybody has God lay an axe to their tree. Because it humbled him in this life. 
Every indication is that it led to his salvation and, and led to an eternity with God. And if God has humbled you and brought you low through challenging circumstances, if in your own way you were made to live as a beast, then you're one of the blessed ones. You've been given the chance to have your pride crushed before it led you to pride's home, the pit of hell, and an eternity apart from God. Consider yourself blessed if God intervened in your life. And we're getting close to the end now and two more very critical points because this is the question now, how can I avoid God's intervention in my life? And it really comes down to this, be eager to break off your sins. Be eager to break off your sins. Don't let your pride push you further away. Daniel gave him the only way out of this. Back to verse 27. Remember, we just jumped over that. Therefore, this is what Daniel says to him. Oh, king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. He's like bold to actually go before the king and say, this is what you need to do. Then he says, you need to break off your sins. You need to break off your sins in two areas of your life. First of all, by practicing righteousness. In other words, you need to start living a holy life, king. You need to get yourself aligned with God and make sure the vertical is in a good place, your relationship with, with the Lord. This is the, to say it in the language we use here, this is the love God part. You've got to love God. You've got to look like God. You've got to be holy and live for him. And then in the second part of his life, he says this, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. This is the horizontal plane. This is your relationships down here with one another. This is the love others part. And in both of these principal areas of his life, he needed to repent. He needed to turn and be done with his sins. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Sadly, it would take this crushing mental affliction over those seven years for him to finally see it. When, when he would finally kind of come to himself and get it. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. That's his moment of repentance. That's where he broke off the sin. This is where he, he, his mind finally returned to understand what was going on. His reason, he said, returned to him. 1 Peter 5, we looked at a little part of this. First uh, Peter 5, 5 to 6, Peter writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is what's happening here. He's humbling himself. Humble yourselves, therefore, Peter says, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, when God decides, when it's in his plan, he may exalt you. Now notice, his reason returned to him. Don't let anyone ever tell you that our faith is not a reasonable faith, that it is not a rational faith. The most reasonable philosophy of life is Christianity. Atheists are off the mark entirely when they say that faith is not rational. In fact, atheism is not rational. 
Christianity makes sense in every way with every discipline that we can pursue with the sciences, humanities, and understanding history and the arts. For us, as we see it, repentance actually starts, listen, this is where repentance starts, not in the heart. Repentance starts in the mind. Repentance is about us understanding where we're standing and agreeing with what God says about it and making a decision with our will to turn 180 degrees away from the way we're going to God's direction. That's repentance. It starts with an understanding and with agreement. When I understand cognitively that I am at odds with God and I change my mind, and before the turn happens, my mind understands and is engaged and the will acts. Romans 12:2 Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Holy Spirit working through that but it's in my understanding. So be eager to break off your sins because that's the only thing that makes sense here. It's, the, it's, it, it's what God provided for us, the pathway to have peace in our own hearts, to be settled in our relationship with Him. And God was the one who sent His one and only Son out of His abundant love for us. He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, give His life on the cross, shed His blood so that the covering for our sin would be there. Now make no mistake that what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar, if he's genuinely becoming a believer by the end of this chapter, that he is being saved by the same shed blood of Jesus Christ that you and I are saved by. That yet, this was a future event for Nebuchadnezzar, a past event for us, but still we understand from Revelation 13, 8, that Jesus Christ was actually crucified before the foundation of the world. So that every single believer throughout all of history was saved, was brought into relation with God, their pride crushed by the very same Savior. By the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus' life given in our place. Jesus humiliated humiliated for us. Isaiah 53, the prophet said he was crushed for our iniquities. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And I hope you see the love of God in all of this, even in the difficult circumstances that he ordains to crush our pride. Through it all, he's, he's holding out hope. He, he leaves the stump and he demonstrates his love to us. Well, finally this. The essence of humility that we've been seeing throughout the passage is this, be quick to give God his rightful place. That's what this has been about all the way along and it's the place that finally Nebuchadnezzar gets to. The latter part of verse 34, and I, I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Notice what he says now, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And he said that back in, in verse 3. But now notice, he goes a little further 
And this was the lesson that he needed to learn. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. That's humility. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. That's the thing that God has wanted him to say all the way along. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And listen, none can stay his hand. No one can stop him. He's all powerful. Or say to him, what have you done? Boy, we ask that question a lot, don't we? Someone in our family gets cancer. What have you done, God? A loved one passes. What have you done, God? I lose my job. What have you done, God? Some crisis hits, and we're asking the question, why, 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 why? And Nebuchadnezzar, this king of Babylon, says, you can't go to God and say, what have you done? his prerogative to choose all of these things. What's awesome about our God is he actually is so patient with us to hear those questions over and over again. And I've asked those questions myself time and time again. Why God, what have you done? And he's patient and long suffering with me, but I don't want to take that for granted. And I don't want to assume it's always going to be there. And I always have to get to the place where ultimately I say, God, your choices for me are best. I can't even see your plan. I don't even know how you're working things out. But I'm going to give you your rightful place. And I'm going to let you choose. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors, my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. He still had all of his power. And still more greatness was added to me. The kingdom actually flourished even more beyond that. And now I... Is this his statement of conversion? I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And here's the line you need to have underlined. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And he knew that by experience. And he's commending that to us, that we would know that too. Give God his rightful place. I came across this quote from Andrew Murray. He was a pastor mostly in the 1800s. He died in uh, 1917, pastor and missionary. And he said this, and it's going to really help us about humility, just to kind of take it and think about it in terms of our everyday lives. How does this play out? And we're going to give you a card on the way out the door that has the quote on it. So you can just listen right now. Don't worry about getting it down. We'll give you this card as a reminder of this message and what he said. Just listen to this. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is for me to have no trouble, never to be fretted or vexed or irritated or sore or disappointed. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around is trouble. It is the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ's 
redemptive work on Calvary's cross manifested in those of his own who are definitely subject to the Holy Spirit. And the thing about that quote, and, and when you get it, and you can look at it again this week, and you're just going to see that that's not just an appeal to us to live humbly, but that's a description of what Jesus Christ did for us. It's exactly what he did. In Philippians chapter 2, though he is God, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 